Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. Before I begin this week's episode, I realised listening back to some of my previous episodes that I just never plug any of my social media channels or anything like that. I think that's because I don't really know where to put it. It always seems a bit awkward and unnatural. So having said that, please follow the podcast updates on Twitter and YouTube at Sinobabble and check out the website at Sinobabble.com for extra content, including episode materials, blog posts, and videos. Okay, moving on. So this week's episode is essentially a continuation of last week's, but instead of focusing on leadership and Mao in particular, we'll be talking more about life and survival under the communist regime during the early 1940s until roughly the end of the Second World War. When I say regime, I mean the communist base camp that was in northwestern China. I want to touch on both how the party itself was holding up, how members of the party who spent all their time working for the revolutionary cause lived and were treated, and hopefully we can talk a bit about the ordinary people who happen to live in communist-controlled areas. I also want to touch on the development of certain ideological policies and practices during this time, especially propaganda, because many of the techniques that the communists came up with during this period were carried over and developed after the founding of the PRC in 1949. Now, I know that all sounds like a lot, and I have already decided that this will be split into two episodes. However, I am going to be recording everything just in one big go, so the second part of this episode will be out next week, as opposed to the regular two-week interval. So at the end of the last episode, we'd reached the communist base in Yan'an, and begun discussing Mao's rise to absolute power within the main base and wider sort of border region government. What we didn't really touch on was how the Sino-Japanese war affected the Communist Party's operations, especially now that World War II had also broken out in 1939. I don't want to dwell too much on the war itself because that's going to be the topic of an entirely different episode, but I do want to talk about the developments as they pertain to the CCP in the early 1940s. In the previous episode, we mentioned how the KMT and communists had formed a second united front after Chiang Kai-shek had basically been kidnapped and forced into a nominal peace treaty in order to focus on defeating the Japanese. I think it probably goes without saying, but this pact, much like the first united front, didn't really last long and ended pretty badly. At the start of the agreement, in about 1939-1940, the CCP's forces and personnel were divided between two border governments, the Shangangning area, covering Shanxi, Gansu and Ningxia provinces, and the less famous Jinchaji government, covering the Shanxi, Chaha and Hebei provinces. I'll try and find a map somewhere and throw it up on the website, but failing that, you can always just do a Google map search for the area. The Red Army was renamed to the 8th Root Army, and those troops that had been left behind in central China during the Long March regrouped and reorganised to form the new 4th Army of about 12,000 soldiers. There were also local troops of soldiers made up of men and women from farming villages or towns who served under the CCP leadership in their own areas. Though most of them worked full-time jobs and lacked training and weapons, they still provided valuable intel and physical support to CCP troops. The communists also managed to collaborate with secret societies on occasion, such as the Red Spears and the Elder Brother Society, and other just generally anti-Japanese groups. 
in general, the United Front, general anti-Japanese sentiment, and the organisation and good behaviour of CCP troops meant that support for the communists was spreading across the remote northern regions. The CCP launched a series of attacks on the Japanese in the 1940s, but unfortunately they usually ended with heavy casualties on both sides, but much heavier on the CCP side. Japanese retaliation was often devastating, sparing no man, woman or child, regardless of their political affiliation, and in a short period of time, the population of the CCP-controlled areas dropped from about 44 million to 25 million. To make matters worse, territorial scrabbles broke out between the new 4th Army and the Nationalist troops in 1940, when the KMT insisted that all CCP troops moved north of the Yangtze River by January of 1941. Failure to comply with these demands led to the outbreak of full-blown fighting in 1941, in which 3,000 communist troops were killed and several more captured. This incident signalled a nominal end to the United Front, though both sides continued to keep up appearances. After this, Japanese attacks on communist-held areas increased, and the CCP lost any chance of Soviet support when the Nazis invaded Russia in 1941. Chiang Kai-shek used this opportunity to introduce a blockade on the communist-held areas, resulting in shortages, especially in weapons, as well as rapidly rising inflation. The CCP responded by permitting the growing of opium by farmers and then selling this to the KMT and Japanese-held areas, which they of course vehemently denied. Despite these efforts to offset military and financial crisis, morale in the communist base areas was dropping fast. And there was a risk that the CCP may lose control of their social organisation on top of all of their other problems. In order to combat this possibility, and despite the intense and extremely dangerous situation, the CCP still managed to find time to develop their political and ideological work among their party members and constituents. By the early 1940s, the communists were in a good position to push for greater social cohesion, particularly among party members in Yan'an. This was because party membership had grown from about 40,000 in 1937 to 800,000 in 1940. A lot of these new members were intellectuals, students and teachers who believed either in the communist movement in general or were just impressed with the CCP's organisational tactics and their nationalist cooperation with the KMT. They also managed to bring a lot of peasants on side by instituting policies of rent reduction and fairer taxation policies, which allowed poorer peasants to increase their land holdings. Some people felt that these policies didn't go quite far enough. The most ideologically pure among the party were gunning for extreme action to oust the landlords, the same type that had been practiced in the Jiangxi Soviet, and the same kind that would actually take place again in the first few years of the PRC. However, the CCP were wary of losing the support of those working with them to fight the Japanese, and so for the meantime, they pursued a more gradualist approach. It was probably the right approach, in my opinion. The party had organised its administration to penetrate from the central level all the way down to the county level, with Kaj tasked with carrying out propaganda and cultural activities, educational and political campaigns, improving conditions for women, and organising youth brigades. Within the party structure itself, cadres had to undergo continuous ideological education, not just when they joined, but throughout their entire time within the party. As large numbers of cadres joined the party between 1937 and 1938, and then again between 1940 and 1942, 
there was a constant need to inculcate, educate and check the dedication of party workers to the revolutionary cause. The measures used to ensure the loyalty of cadres could range from as mild as training and discussion sessions to self-criticism writing and presentations and group readings of private diaries to find flaws in ideological thinking. There was a constant weaning out of cadres who fell short of expectations, usually identified through poor results in regular exams or failure in the physical tests they were required to take alongside their ideological training. I really feel like I would have failed to be a cadre under these circumstances. Occasionally, there were large-scale internal campaigns dedicated specifically to re-educating ideologically weak cadres and also rooting out those who were not up to scratch and who were possibly class enemies or worse, KMT spies, and who were to be demoted, kicked out of the party, or even blacklisted and sent out of the region altogether. The biggest and most well-known of these internal campaigns was the rectification movement of 1942 to about 1944, also sometimes known as the Yan'an Talks or Talks at the Yan'an Forum in reference to Mao's series of famous speeches. In historically simple terms, the movement has been regarded mainly as a response to criticisms that the party received from a number of prominent writers or even as a backlash to ideological revisionists trying to overtake party power for themselves. While there is some truth to these interpretations, which we'll talk about shortly, this really wasn't the only reason the rectification movement took place, nor was the main goal of the movement simply to get rid of a few troublesome elitist writers. The main aim of the rectification movement was, in fact, to create ideological unity within the party based on the correct interpretation of Marxist-Leninist Mao Zedong thought. Now, we're all up to date with our ideology definitions, but if you missed the last two episodes about Mao Zedong thought, I suggest you go back and listen to them because I'm not going over it again. We did that in enough detail. You get the picture. Other reasons for the drive for ideological unity included the need to boost morale. The constant warfare had taken its toll on the population of the CCP-dominated region, and the KMT's blockade and the already hard and sparse lifestyle of Yan'an was only getting harder, taking its toll on the younger party members. Finally, as, like I said, there'd been a surge in the number of party members due to high numbers of students, teachers and local elites fleeing their own war-torn regions, seeking refuge in the mountains with the communists, there was a need to actually even teach them the basics of what the communist revolution was all about. Yes, some of the people who had to take part or who were singled out for criticism were indeed writers, and a lot were members of the artistic community in general. This was partly because a large number of intellectuals who had joined the party were involved in cultural work anyway, as this was the area in which many of them had expertise, as opposed to military or civilian roles which could be filled by those without higher education. There was a blossoming of poetry in the early days of Yan'an, which was seen as a lofty elitist art form, and indeed was really only attended to by the intellectuals involved in the activity itself. People who openly criticised the party's top-level cadres and veiled references to how the leaders acted towards younger and lower-level cadres were particularly singled out during the rectification movement. Probably the most famous cases are those of two young writers, Wang Shuwei and Dingling. But, as we will see, their writings were not full of empty, esoteric language out of the reach of ordinary people. 
And they were not solely concerned with the role and nature of literature in the revolution. Rather, they attacked directly the organisational structure of the CCP and its demoralising effect on the lower-level cadres, especially the youth. Going even further, it wasn't even really about the contents of their writing, nor was it the specific attacks on the higher levels within the party that led to the need for rectification of intellectuals. Beyond this, there was the crucial problem of class. Now, class struggle was fundamental to the communist revolution, but like many revolutionary movements, the key members at its foundation and launch were actually intellectuals themselves. As we saw in the episodes on the May the 4th movement, after the fall of the last Chinese dynasty, the intellectual classes were usually the most open to embracing new ideas and were often idealists who felt that they could change Chinese society for the better through the implementation of new ideologies. This was in stark contrast to the peasant and working classes, who were usually living at subsistence level and had neither the time nor the inclination to join a revolutionary movement until one arrived basically on their doorstep. Often the proletariat had no choice but to side with whichever force happened to be ruling their area at that point in time. Intellectuals who had a strong belief in communism and took up most of the positions as high and middle level cadres and government officials until 1949, were there because they were the most qualified for the job. To an extent, the party had no choice but to embrace them, as they needed educated people who could read and write, carry out effective war propaganda, write newspaper articles, literature, and generally create revolutionary art that translated policies into effective messages, whilst also going down to the common people and organising them according to the party's esoteric political campaign requirements. Now, this was all well and good, but at the end of the day, intellectuals were unfortunately part of the petty bourgeoisie, of impure class background, and so if they wanted to participate fully in the revolution, they would have to undergo a fundamental transformation. The most important method of ensuring the loyalty of intellectuals within the party was to launch several sessions of ideological reform to the point where it became almost a continuous process. Continuing on the theme of class, the CCP elites really wanted to start prioritising the lower classes, particularly the peasants. After all, the work of the party was to bring politics in line with the needs of the masses in order that their interests were served actively and their goals aligned with those of the party. The rectification introduced the idea of down-to-the-countryside and mass line as core themes of party policy. So what is mass line? Well, the mass line theory was first hinted at in Mao's 1940 speech on new democracy, in which he stated that China should be run on a combination of, quote, the state system, a joint dictatorship of all the revolutionary classes, and the system of government, democratic centralism. So if you don't know, democratic centralism is the practice whereby members of the party vote on a policy and once a decision has been made, it's binding and everyone has to act in unity towards it regardless of your opinion of it. The joint dictatorship of the revolutionary classes was the idea that inspiration for policies be taken from the people, in other words, the masses and revolutionary petty bourgeoisie. As the petty bourgeoisie were more often than not cadres within the party, it was their job to go down to the masses, collect their thoughts, ideas and grievances, and use this information to report back to the centre in order to formulate appropriate policies. 
However, this process wasn't really put into action until after the rectification movement solidified this as party law. So, now that we've got all the background in place, let's get into the actual 1942 rectification movement itself, starting with what actually kicked it all off. It seems as if the inciting incident of the movement was a confrontation between Mao and the members of the 28 Bolsheviks, the returned students from Moscow, who we spoke about in the last episode. In particular, Mao was in direct conflict with a man named Wang Ming, who we also spoke about a couple of weeks ago, who was essentially vying for the top position in the party with the help of the Comintern. Now, the Soviet Union wasn't able to keep up good communication with the communists in China at the time, and so Mao was actually able to defeat Wang at a key Politburo meeting in September 1941, at which point he also launched the campaign to rectify the styles of our party, study and writing. In February 1942, he called on the party to revolutionise thought, partake in rectification study, and to oppose subjectivism, factionalism, bureaucratism, and dogmatism. Intellectuals, in general, were criticised as being ignorant, focused only on their books, and for not participating in real labour. Ironically, this meant that a lot of day-to-day work had to be suspended in order for people to take part in study sessions and read a list of required documents to correct these attitudes. Mao wanted to eradicate what he regarded to be Soviet worship throughout the party cadres and established a new party tradition with his own thinking at the core and then to infuse it within the party organism. The targets of the rectification movement alternated between different groups, each exhibiting their own unique problems that needed correction. First, they came for the foreign educated professors. The Central Research Institute had been founded in Yan'an to develop senior theoretical cadres, and was full of those cadres who had studied overseas and had either elite qualifications, which may have intimidated Mao considering his average educational background, as well as an affiliation with Wang Ming and the 28 Bolsheviks. These professors were singled out for public humiliation and attacked by younger cadres for their faults. An editorial in Liberation Daily, Yanan's official paper, attacked the importance placed on memorization, calling these professors broken down gramophones and stating that, quote, the ability to quote Marxist-Leninist aphorisms does not make someone a theoretician. Only those who are able to use the spirit and methods of Marxism-Leninism to resolve practical problems can be considered theoreticians. The professors bent the knee, but still refused to go through the painful process of self-criticism. This led to another editorial being published that called on these professors to drop their trousers. This is a metaphor, I'm assuming. So that their tails, which represented their dogmatism, could be cut off. Next, they came for the critics. In March of 1942, Mao suddenly seemed to become more liberal in his views, releasing articles and committee memos that encouraged the party to be more open to dissenting and critical views, especially from those outside of the party structure. This is where the literary element of the rectification movement began to overlap with its general political aims, as it was mainly writers who responded to Mao's call to be more open and critical, and began publishing articles criticising the way of life in Yan'an. They discussed the role of literature, arguing that it should be free from political control, 
and that it was the role of writers to basically hold the higher-ups accountable. They cited Lucian, modern China's best-known writer and communist sympathiser, in their defence, as he had once said, quote, Politics wants to preserve the status quo, and thus places itself in opposite direction to literature as a symbol of discontent. Literature should also be free from political control, as it dealt with questions of the human spirit, to which politics had no answer. One poet named Ai Ching said that the writer is the recorder of emotions, the nerve or eye of wisdom in a nation, i.e. the sphere of emotions, impressions, thoughts and mental action, the loyal soldier who protects the nation or class to which he belongs. Despite all their critiques, the writer's main aim was to actually strengthen the revolution through their polemics, stories, poems and essays. One of the most influential of these writers was Wang Xingwei, a journalist, translator and fiction writer who was associated with the 28 Bolsheviks and worked at the Central Research Institute, though in a fairly low position. Interestingly, at the time that he wrote his famous essay, he was the least well-known of the revolutionary writers, but he was soon thrown into the spotlight due to his outspoken nature and later became a martyr representing the entire group. Wang's essay entitled Wild Lily is famous to this day and has been cited during some of the biggest turning point moments in Chinese history, including the 1957 anti-rightist movement and the 1989 Tiananmen Square incident. It's used as a voice of reason of the people against the injustices perpetrated by certain members of the ruling elite. Written in 1942 for publication in Liberation Daily, he dedicated the essay to his unrequited love, Li Fen, a fellow party member and classmate of his back in the 1920s. He tells her story in the first few paragraphs of the essay, how she was tied up by her uncle and sent to her death in 1928 for being a revolutionary and was probably sent off to be shot by KMT soldiers, how she was pure, strong and a martyr for the cause and how he now drew upon the strength of her memory to write his essay. The essay itself isn't very long and is divided up into four sections. In the first, entitled What is Missing in Our Lives?, he states that there are a number of reasons why young people are unenthusiastic of late. Hunger, lack of entertainment, inability to find a love interest. But the most important reason was in fact that higher ranking cadres were dismissive and even abusive towards younger, lower ranking cadres. In the second section, he argues that what some people see as young people just complaining about trivialities and discomfort should actually be cherished as the energy of youth and used to help solve real problems. In the last two sections, he calls out the masters of the revolutionary camp for becoming complacent and attacks the hierarchical nature of the party, whereby those higher up consume more, do less of the unpleasant work, and basically just ignore the plight of those beneath them. His essay was an instant hit, and Wang continued to publish more articles, taking his criticisms even further, even subtly calling out Mao's preference for beautiful young women, and demanding greater liberty and democracy in Yan'an throughout all party ranks. His calls for members of the Rectification Inspection Committee to be elected democratically were supported by the majority of his colleagues at the Central Research Institute. Another well-known writer, and also a member of the 28 Bolsheviks, was a woman named Dingling. Dingling, who had reached Yan'an in 1936 and had been a revolutionary since the mid-1920s, 
had spent three years in prison after the execution of her husband in 1931. On March 9th, 1942, the day that the editorial Dogma Trousers was printed, Liberation Daily published Dingling's Thoughts on International Working Women's Day, in which she attacked the lack of sexual equality in Yan'an, the privileged position of the wives of some of the leaders, and the sexism of Yan'an males. Both Wang Shuwei's and Dingling's criticisms received wide support and were met with favourable responses from a slew of other writers, including Xiao Jun and He Yepin. However, it was not to last. When Mao caught wind of the fact that the movement was turning away from targeting middle-level cadres and started to instead attack the highest levels of the party, he suddenly lost all pretensions of liberalism. Between May 2nd and May 23rd, Mao held his famous talks at the Yenem Forum on Literature and Art, which signalled the turn of the rectification movement to target those with the strongest voices, the writers and artists. I feel like over the course of my eight or so years studying Chinese history, I must have read this essay about a hundred times. So I'll spare you the excruciating repetitions and unnecessary self-congratulatory language and just try and summarise the main takeaways from the talks with a few key quotes. First, Mao starts by saying, "Okay, look, writers have been absolutely crucial to the revolution since the May the 4th movement, but a lot of them have not bothered to integrate themselves with the masses and the aims of the party since they arrived at Yan'an. And now I will quote Mao at length so you get an idea of what he's talking about. Our stand is that of the proletariat and the masses. For members of the Communist Party, this means keeping to the stand of the party, keeping to the party spirit and party policy. Are there any of our literary and art workers who are still mistaken or not clear in their understanding of this problem? I think there are. Many of our comrades have frequently departed from the correct stand. There is the problem of attitude. From one stand, there follow specific attitudes towards specific matters. The question is, with whom are you dealing? There are three kinds of persons, the enemy, our allies in the United Front, and our own people. The last are the masses and their vanguard. The problem of audience, i.e. the people for whom our works of literature and art are produced. In the Shanxi, Gansu, Ningxia border region and the anti-Japanese base areas, this problem differs from that of the KMT areas and differs still more from that in Shanghai before the war. Since the audience for our literature and art consists of workers, peasants and soldiers and of their cadres, the problem arises of understanding them and knowing them well. A great deal of work has to be done in order to understand them and know them. Our writers and artists have their literary and artwork to do, but their primary task is to understand people and know them well. In this regard, how have matters stood? I would say they have been lacking in knowledge and understanding. They've been like a hero with no place to display his prowess. What does lacking in knowledge mean? Not knowing people well. The writers and artists do not have good knowledge either of those whom they describe or of their audience. Indeed, they may hardly know them at all. They do not know the workers or peasants or soldiers well and do not know the cadres well either. What does lacking in understanding mean? Not understanding the language, that is, not being familiar with the rich, lively language of the masses. Since many writers and artists stand aloof from the masses and lead empty lives, Naturally, they are unfamiliar with the language of the people. Accordingly, their works are not only insipid in language, 
but often contain nondescript expressions of their own coining, which run counter to popular usage. Many comrades like to talk about a mass style, but what does it mean? It means that the thoughts and feelings of our writers and artists should be fused with those of the masses of workers, soldiers and peasants. To achieve this fusion, they should conscientiously learn the language of the masses. The last problem is study, by which I mean the study of Marxism-Leninism and of society. Anyone who considers himself a revolutionary Marxist writer, and especially any writer who is a member of the Communist Party, must have a knowledge of Marxism-Leninism. At present, however, some comrades are lacking in the basic concepts of Marxism. So, so much for the problem of writers and artists. How did Mao suppose that they solved these problems? Mao said that there is no art for art's sake, and that art must always serve politics and the political will and desire of its audience. As the audience of literature and art should be workers, peasants and soldiers, and the urban petty bourgeoisie to an extent, the only way to write articles that reflected their lives and spoke to them in their language was to live with them and observe their way of life. Quote, China's revolutionary writers and artists, writers and artists of promise, must go among the masses. They must, for a long period of time, unreservedly and wholeheartedly go among the masses of workers, peasants and soldiers, go into the heat of the struggle, go to the only source, the broadest and richest source, in order to observe, experience, study and analyse all the different kinds of people, all the classes, all the masses, all the vivid patterns of life and struggle, and all the raw materials of art and literature. Only then can they proceed to creative work. Otherwise, you will have nothing to work with, and you will be nothing but a phony writer or artist, the kind that Lu Xun, in his will, so earnestly cautioned his son never to become. So, too long didn't read, May the Fourth Idealists Were Dangerous, Notions of Liberalism, Democracy and Individual Freedoms Were Poisonous, and don't write a book unless you're planning on writing it for a barely literate proletariat society for the purpose of teaching them the glories of the revolution. But, in all honesty, the talks signalled the end of the period of criticism and the triumph of Mao over the rectification movement. Wang Shui was stripped of his party status for being a Trotskyist, or was it a Trotskyite? I always forget. He was abandoned by his fellow writers, including Dingling, who all backtracked on their positions, and he was arrested and later executed when the base was evacuated in 1947. As for the rectification movement, it continued to be carried out among high-ranking officials who had ever been slightly opposed to Mao at both Yan'an and other base areas, and the central leadership was transformed into one completely loyal to Mao and his interpretation of Marxist ideology. It was also carried out amongst middle and lower level cadres to ensure that they had the proper understanding of Maoist ideology and were implementing that when they carried out campaigns amongst the masses. Finally, at the 7th Party Congress in 1945, the entire party formally accepted Mao Zedong thought as the CCP's guiding ideology and course of action, and Mao became the party's undisputed supreme leader. So, we're going to leave it there for the first half of this episode. In the next half, which will be out, like I said, next week, we'll be talking about the fallout of the rectification movement, the changes it brought to life and culture in Yan'an, and some of the major campaigns that were carried out under this new supreme Mao Zedong thought ideology.
Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Don't forget to check out Sinobabble on Twitter and YouTube, as well as the website at sinobabble.com. And I hope you tune in next time.